Father God, thank you so much for gathering us tonight. Thank you that as we've just sung, your truth prevails over unbelief, that your, your grace is sufficient to encourage us, comfort us, change us. So please, Lord, keep, us, uh, keep our minds sharp tonight. But more than that, Lord, please change our hearts, change our desires, change our attitudes, that we might love Jesus in the good times and the bad. And we ask that in his precious name. Amen. Amen. One of the um, favourite pastimes of parents who have young children is to make um, educated guesses about what they're going to be when they grow up. So people look at Chloe and go, ooh, she's got long fingers, she's going to be a pianist. Or they, they like the way Caleb's stacking bricks and like, ooh, he's going to be an architect. Or usually he's going to be a rugby player. And it's funny, there's always prestigious jobs that people go for. <laughs> it's never, never the sort of the lower down social scale. But, but in the end, parents are often surprised, aren't they? Often surprised to see what their kids actually end up doing. I think my folks were definitely surprised. And when they heard I was going to become a vicar, no one, no one saw that coming. Well, last week, the angel announced to Joseph and Mary what baby Jesus' job description would be. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He has come to save his people from their sins. Now, I've, no doubt Mary and Joseph were massively surprised by that announcement. It was quite a prestigious job, isn't it? God with us. But I doubt many of us were surprised. If you've been around churches for a while, perhaps you feel that the Christmas story is somewhat familiar. We kind of know how it's going to go. We know what's underneath the Christmas tree already. Well, if that's you, I suspect that this passage today will rip the rug from right out underneath our feet. It will surprise us. Yes, Jesus is God with us. Yes, he has come to save. But today we see who he has come to save. And it's not who you'd think. Today we see how he's going to save. And it's not what you'd expect. What's strange is that throughout this passage, Jesus is still a toddler. I think... um, at least a year has passed since the events of chapter 1. But, but unlike parents who make stupid, educated guesses about their kids, what they're going to be when they grow up, Matthew's not guessing. He's using a system of Old Testament prophecies and allusions to give us absolute certainty that this toddler will be the saviour. But who has he come to save and how will he do it? Well, I've got two surprises for us. The first, first surprise you'll see on your handouts. He is a king who pulls in pagans, yet repels the religious. Follow with me in verse 1, if you would. Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now I think it's quite hard for us to separate this passage from the sort of sentimental uh, Christmas card sort of picture which we have. Here we are. Uh, We three kings of Orient are, one in a taxi, one in a car, one in a scooter, beeping his hooter, and I forget how the song goes. But they're not kings. And we don't really know how many are, um, how many of them there were, and we don't even know their preferred method of transport, whether it was scooter, taxi, or camel. We don't know. Well, what do we know about these guys then? Well, 
They're called magi. And that word used elsewhere is, is used to describe people who dabble in magic, in witchcraft, and astrology. All practices which are forbidden by the Jewish law of Moses. And we're also told, notice, they're from the east. And in the east in the Bible is codenamed for Babylon, the worst enemy of God's people. So putting magicians and Babylon together, Matthew's Jewish readers would have viewed these guys with utter disgust. They are pagan outsiders of the worst possible variety. And yet, they have travelled for months on end at great personal cost, following a star sent by God, all to worship this Jewish king. Naturally, what do they do? They head to Jerusalem first. Of course they do. It's the great city of King David. and They head straight to the king's palace, perhaps expecting the, the, the royal king to be born right there. But I doubt they, respect, they expect this response in verse 3 from Herod. Look at that, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Literally, he was terrified. And all Jerusalem with him. Everything we know about King Herod the Great tells us he was an insecure, paranoid maniac. He's willing to do whatever it takes to maintain control over his kingdom. In fact, he, he once murdered his wife and his sons just because they, they questioned or threatened his rule. This guy was a psycho. So how fantastically awkward then when foreign magi rock up at his palace asking for the whereabouts of a rival king. He's threatened. Did you notice in verse 3 that also Jerusalem are threatened with him? The city don't want the Messiah either. Now, all the people in Jerusalem, they knew Herod was a phony. He wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. It was just a, a, a sort of a puppet king put there by the Romans. But nonetheless, Herod was really popular in Jerusalem. He spent vast sums of money rebuilding this pretty temple and, and rebuilding the infrastructure. So if you like, perhaps, perhaps for the city, the birth of a, a Messiah was a threat to their gravy train. Perhaps they don't want Jesus to spoil the convenient fiction that Herod isn't the real king. Well, okay, King Herod isn't like the Messiah. The city, they don't want the Messiah. But surely we expect the religious establishment, the religious leaders of the day, they're, they're going to love it, surely. And in verse 4, Herod goes to the chief priests and the Bible experts to, to see where the Messiah is prophesied to be born. And quoting from Micah chapter 5, they hit the nail bang on the head. That's the, the verse we began our service with earlier along. And the answer's obvious, isn't it, for them? Of course, Bethlehem. Of course the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. It's the, 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 the town where the Davidic king would come from. Everyone knows that. It's, it's Bethlehem. That's where the great shepherd of God's people would come from. Of course it's Bethlehem. So what do they do? Well, they immediately pack up their bags, they throw their Bibles in their backpacks, and they join the Magi, and they travel out to see their Messiah to worship him. But they don't do that, do they? In fact, it seems the religious leaders do nothing with their Bible knowledge. 
except provide their phony puppet king with enough information to have Jesus killed. Verse 7, Herod sends the Magi to Bethlehem as his unwitting spies under the pretense that he might go and worship them, worship Jesus at a later time. I think the irony here is that even though, even though Herod's the one in the palace, even though Herod's the one on the throne, actually it's God who remains in absolute sovereign control over this situation. And even if his own people, the Jews, refuse to worship Jesus, then he's going to ensure that pagan outsiders do. So once again, what does he do? He sends us this strange GPS-guided floating star, whatever it was, cosmological sign, we don't quite know. And he makes sure that these pagans get to Jesus to give him the glory he deserves. Let's pick it up again in verse 10. When the Magi saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This seems familiar, isn't it? But it's, it's bittersweet. It fulfills so many Old Testament hopes as kingdom blessing now comes to the nations, just as God promised Abraham. As the ends of the earth come and present their gifts to the king, just as the queen of Sheba presented gold and incense to Solomon, that's what, that's what the Magi are doing here. It, it's wonderful, but at the same time it's tragic. Because the people who should be there are trying to kill him. The people who should know their Bibles are just shrugging their shoulders. It kind of anticipates how Jesus will be treated as an adult. Instead of welcomed by his own people, they're threatened by him and, and ultimately seek his death. About six years ago, Hannah and I um, went to Rome. I think it was our second wedding anniversary. Um, and one day we went around the Vatican Museum. If you've not done it, you, you've got to do it. It's fantastic. And there's a vast room about the size of this, this hall, actually. And, and the room is empty apart from two tapestries which are hanging on either side, opposite sides of the room. They're, they're vast. They're like 10 metres by, by 10 metres, huge. And um, on one of the tapestries is this scene. It's great. It's, um, it's the, the Magi, the nations coming to, to bow before Jesus and adore him. They're, they're, they're taking off their crowns and throwing them at, their, the, at his feet. It's a wonderful, vast uh, tapestry. But strangely, on the opposite wall is a, is a tapestry of Pope Urban VIII. It's another coronation scene. As he receives his papal crown, having just been elected Pope. As someone deliberately chose to hang those tapestries in the same room on the opposite sides. And they must have put that strange juxtaposition there for, for a reason. I, I, I wonder if they put it in there to make us ask the question, well, hang on, who, who's the real king? Who are you going to lay your crown before? That's a question Matthew wants us to ask. Ask yourself, are you maybe a little bit like Herod? Perhaps you might consider Jesus a threat to your rule. Because if Jesus is king, that, that means you're, you're not king. And you can't live your life your way without him. 
Or maybe like the city of Jerusalem, maybe we, we might consider Jesus to be a threat somehow to, be, to our stability, to our comfort. Because if Jesus is the king, then we can't keep believing this manufactured, convenient fiction that bowing down to all the gods of this world will, will offer us lasting peace and satisfaction. Or maybe like the religious leaders here, we, we consider Jesus maybe a threat to our pride. Because if he is the king who has come to save sinners, then we can't possibly earn our salvation with our Bible knowledge, or our church service, or our charity. Who are you in this passage? Herod, the city, the religious leaders? Or maybe you see yourself more like the Magi. Maybe you see what very few others do, that Jesus is the rightful king of our lives. That even though we are unclean, outsiders, maybe we're people who we know in our hearts we've dabbled like them in all the wrong sort of things. But nonetheless, one way or another, this king, he leads us to him. And he wants us to bow down and worship him with joy. Maybe you feel like you're more like the Magi. I think that's our first surprise. Here is Jesus. He's a king who pulls in pagans and yet repels the religious. But the question at the end of this first point is how? How can he possibly save people like us so mired in muck and misery and, and sin? And, and that leads us to our second surprise. Jesus isn't just a king. He's a prophet who will ensure exodus by enduring exile. Let's pick it up at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, according with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now the way Matthew's written this, he you can't help but think, this is a lot like the book of Exodus, isn't it? Do you see the links as we read them? There in Exodus, Pharaoh was threatened by the size of the Jewish nation, so he has all the boys drowned. Here, Herod is threatened by the prospect of a rival king, so he has all the boys in Bethlehem killed. There, baby Moses miraculously escapes and grows up to be the redeemer of Israel. Here, Jesus miraculously escapes. And so we think he too will grow up to, to bring about a, a different sort of exodus. There's a lot of similarities, aren't there? But there's one key difference. Maybe you noticed it. Whereas Moses and the people of Israel came out of Egypt, here Jesus and his parents are told to go into Egypt. And you've got to ask, why? 
Why would the Lord God send him there of all locations? Why send him back to the place of slavery and death? Well, in our confession earlier on, David took us to Hosea chapter 11, which is quoted here by Matthew in verse 15. And back in Hosea, God God remembers how he called his son, Israel, out of Egypt. And yet, how did they respond? They responded to that redemption with disobedience and idolatry. But here, in Matthew, we read how Jesus goes into Egypt, into the place of death. Not because of his own sin, but in order to bring us sinners out. If you like, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true son who has come to redeem us from our sin. Back in 2016, there was a lot of noise in the media about trains. They they were hiking up their their prices, commuter prices were going up. And uh, particularly the service wasn't great. A lot of uh, commuters going in and out of London struggled to, to, to find a seat. Well, you might remember in July of that year, um, someone took a photo of Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. I think he was on a, on a train from London to Newcastle. And they, they took a photo of him sitting on the floor of the carriage right next door to, to the loo. And the Guardian uh, found this photo and they, they put it up with that headline. Corbyn joins seatless commuters on the floor for a three-hour train journey. And it was a really powerful image. Because he's thinking, yeah, this guy's one of us. He knows our pain. He knows our frustration. And so we, we can trust him to sort out the train crisis. We can sus- trust him to, to sort it out. Slightly unfortunately, the very next day, Virgin Rail revealed footage of Corbyn walking past various unbooked and un- unoccupied seats. And much to the amusement of the right-wing media, it, was just a, it turned out to be a media stunt. But, but looking at this image of Jesus here, We see he is the real deal. See, at this point in his life, who is he? He's God incarnate. He's not yet two years old. And yet he is the child of a refugee, living in a hostile land, having escaped a massacre. His childhood in exile anticipates an adult life of exile. Though he was the rightful king of Israel, Jesus grew up in obscurity, in in a a place called Nazareth. It's a nowhere place for for nowhere people. He's the king of Israel, and yet he was made a Nazarene. And from the very start of his public ministry, he was on the run from his very own people. More Herods and more religious leaders were threatened by his rule. And ultimately, what happened that led him to the cross where he experienced the worst exile of them all. Where he was separated from his father in death. Why? Why would God enter our world and willingly endure this life of exile? Willingly endure this death of exile? Well, I wonder if it's it's so that we might look at him and go, he's one of us. He knows our pain. He knows our frustration. And so we can trust him 
to sort it out. See, in order to redeem us, Christ had to suffer with us. In order to save us from sin, he had to be made sin. In order to bring about our exodus, he had to endure exile. As I bring things to a close, here are just a couple of applications for us. First is this, friends, we can stop weeping. Now you might think that's a rather callous thing to say. I know what a number of you are going through. And I'm sure I don't know a large, large part of what you're going through as well. And we're weeping. Many of us are weeping. We're suffering. And here are the women in Jerusalem. They're crying out. Why? Because their baby boys has been torn from their arms and killed before them. They're weeping. So how can you possibly say stop weeping? Well, this is why Matthew quotes from Jeremiah. Would you follow with me? Verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, it's near Bethlehem. Weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they're no more. When Jeremiah originally wrote these words, he was, he was addressing the mothers of Judah who are, who are standing in this town of Ramah, right near Bethlehem, watching their sons being carted off into exile to Babylon, hooked together by the lips. Their mothers, they're they're suspecting they're never going to see their boys ever again. They're weeping. And when we suffer loss, it's absolutely natural that we weep too. We weep because we've lost someone we loved. We weep because we know deep down this this just isn't the way it's supposed to be. We weep because all this reminds us we're living in a world in exile, far away from God. During the Second World War, the US Army, you might know, were forced to retreat from the Philippines. And many of their soldiers were left behind and and they became prisoners of war to the Japanese forces. You might have heard the the infamous um, Bataan Death March. The survivors were forced to Uh, march over 70 miles, knowing that if they were too slow or too weak, they'd be bayoneted by their captors, or perhaps die from dysentery or dehydration. The very few who survived that death march were then put in a hellish prisoner of war camp, where essentially they were left to rot. Survivors say that um, men on that march called themselves ghosts. Ghosts believing themselves to be unseen and uncared for by the nation who put them there. Perhaps sometimes we might feel this way in in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our grief. We might feel like ghosts, unseen, uncared for by God. But Matthew puts this Jeremiah quote here expecting that we know how it ends. <laughs> Would you turn with me to Jeremiah 31 again? It's page 792. Because Matthew assumes his Jewish readership have this knowledge. Often we, we don't, do we? But we need to see this. Uh, page 792, Jeremiah 31. 
He's just spoken to these weeping mothers, seeing their boys carted off into exile. But then he says this in verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there's hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Friends, the reason we can stop weeping is because Jesus has come to put an end to exile. He has come to put an end to death and suffering. He has come to bring us exiles home. So those prisoners of war, they they felt unseen and uncared for by the USA, but, but eventually their redemption came. In an astonishing feat of bravery, uh, about 120 US soldiers and 200 Filipino guerrillas, they outflanked 8,000 Japanese soldiers. They risked everything to enter that camp. Alvy Robbins was one of those rescuers. And he described as he went into the barracks of the first uh, POW camp they came to, he saw one US soldier huddled in a corner, shaking, shuddering. And tears pouring down his face. The prisoner said this, I thought we'd been forgotten. To which Alvi said, no, you're not forgotten. You're heroes. And we've come to take you home. No matter what you're suffering at the moment, you are not forgotten by God. Friends, no matter how far away from heaven you might feel, you can stop weeping because you know that the day of your redemption is drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. We can learn to stop weeping and instead we can stop worshipping. And friends, this invitation is open to everyone. No matter who you are here tonight, As we saw earlier, this exodus, this redemption is open to all. Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the Gentiles. He's not only the king of the healthy, he's the king of the broken. He's not only the king of the hopeful, he's the king of the hurting. No matter who you are, no matter what your condition, like these magi, you're invited to worship this king. You're invited to his table to eat. An anticipation of when we're finally home with him on the day he returns. So friends, tonight, will you do what the Magi do and recognise who the real king is and cast your crowns before him? Will you stop weeping, knowing that home is nearer and nearer each day? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you've given us a saviour who can sympathise with our weaknesses, who can understand our sin and our suffering, who entered our mired and broken world willingly, who was exiled in our place. Father, we thank you for such a saviour. We thank you of such a redemption. We thank you for sending this king, this wonderful prophet, sending yourself. Please, Father, send us out in joy to serve him, we pray.
Amen.